Now we are going to look at our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin as well as the screen. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11, as Paul uh, turns the corner in Corinthians and starts talking about um, uh, spiritual gifts. And this is what he says. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The word of the Lord. Well, if you were to describe your, word, your life using one of these two words, which word would you use? Competition or celebration? How would you describe your life? Is it competition or is it celebration? Well, what's the difference between the two? Well, we know competition, right? It's striving and trying to achieve something. Celebration is resting in what has already been achieved. Competition is competing against others, where celebration is celebrating with others. In competition, there is an uncertainty that what you hope for will come to pass. But celebration is certainty that you have received that which you hoped for. The words competition and celebration describe the difference between the world and Christianity. The mantra of the world is survival of the fittest. It's a world of competition, constant striving to prove my value and my worth. And my value is based on what I do, on what I have, or what others around me think of me. It's something that must be earned. But in Christianity, we have cause for celebration. For my value, if you are a believer in Christ, has already been bestowed on you by God through the work of Jesus Christ. God has set his love on you while you were a sinner and made you righteous through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ. See, Christianity is a celebration because it is a status that I receive now, not a reward that I might receive later if I perform. As Christians, we have every reason to celebrate. But we live in this world, and we can easily fall prey to the philosophy of the world and be deceived into thinking that we have to compete 
rather than we get to celebrate. See, that's what's happened with this church in Corinth, that the world has crept into the church. And they have a philosophy and a mindset of competition. They're not trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ and what he's done in them. And so we see this constant dissension in the church as we've been looking through this letter that Paul has written them. Remember, there's this issue of lawsuits where they're taking each other to court. We see the, in the issue of uh, food, uh, eating food sacrificed to idols, that each uh, person is not watching out for their brother, being careful not to make them stumble in their conduct. We saw it last week in the issue of communion, how they weren't thinking about the other person as they were taking that sacrament. And we find another area where we see dissension and conflict, and that is in the area of spiritual gifts. See, rather than serving one another, using any giftedness that God has given them, gifts that he's given them, they're using spiritual gifts as markers of spiritual maturity, creating even more divisions between people in the church. So Paul is going to show the Corinthians and us that they are missing the point. They're so busy climbing this ladder of the world that they've never asked if it's leaning against the right wall. These gifts that God has given them and us is for the service of one another. See, because competition leads to frustration and isolation. But celebration leads to joy and service. Many of us, when we wake up, we wake up with the mindset of having to go out and to prove to myself and to God that I am enough for his love. And we see the world and our brother and sister in the church as competition. And Paul is saying that the remedy to the sickness is grace. That what we need to do is return to our first love. That Jesus has clothed us with grace and we are special in him. That we don't have to prove ourselves or be someone for all the love that we need is in him. And as such, we can live our lives serving and blessing others with the strength and the gifts that God gives me. How do we not fall into the trap of the Corinthians? We're going to look at two points that Paul brings up in this sermon. Number one, recognize that we have already received his unconditional love. And then finally, number two, recognize that I am called to be an instrument of grace. Because competition always leads to frustration and isolation. But celebration always leads to joy and service. So let's begin with point number one. We must first recognize that we have received God's unconditional love. Paul begins in verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Paul is addressing, if you'll remember, the Corinthians have written Paul a letter, kind of laundry list of questions they have, and we don't have that letter, only Paul's response. But we can clearly see through the way Paul responds, what is the issue going on that the Corinthians have written Paul about? And that issue is what spiritual gift is the highest and the best. 
See, some in the church are touting that the, the gifts that they have are the highest and the best. And really, the question they're asking behind this is, who is the most spiritual? We see this question again and again, uh, you know, in the scriptures, right? There were the disciples who followed Jesus. And while they were on the road, kind of away from Jesus, they begin to argue, who is the greatest? There's this tendency to live that way. And so Paul is uh, responding in this letter. The focus of division, it seems that the spiritual gifts that they are touting as the highest is speaking in tongues and prophecy. In chapters 12 through 14, tongues is mentioned 21 times and prophecy is mentioned 20 times. They're seeming to limit those gifts or, or classify them as uh, the supernatural, the highest, with tongues being above all. There are people who have written this letter, they're seeking to justify themselves by their gifts. And so Paul is going to answer this question in chapters 12 through 14. We're starting in 12. And the way he's going to answer them, the question is not by answering which is the greatest gift. But rather, he is going to pound on these two facts, that what has been given to us is for the purpose of building one another up. And second, that these gifts are given so that we might have an impact on the world around us. You know, Redeemer, we talk about the fact that we are a home and a mission. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about. How do we be a good home, love one another, and how do we be, a, we be a good mission to the world? And so to break down 12 through 14, in chapter 12, he's going to give us the proper perspective on gifts and bearers of gifts. In 14, he's going to speak specifically on tongues and prophecy. But everything revolves around chapter 13. And many of us know what chapter 13 is, right? If I don't have love... I don't have anything, the famous chapter on love. Now, the reason I'm giving you this context is I want to make sure uh, that you understand the context or you're going to get lost. We need to follow Paul's train of thought. A lot of people look at this passage sort of as this sort of manual on, okay, now we're going to get the download on spiritual gifts. No, Paul is addressing a specific issue going on in the church. So Paul says, I don't want you to be informed, uninformed about spiritual gifts. And then notice in verse 2 and 3, he really says absolutely nothing about spiritual gifts. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Paul describes, this is who you were, Corinthians. You were led astray. The word is marched or marched away to idols. In other words, there was a time not to in the distant past when you did not worship the one true God. Rather, you worshiped idols, these mute idols. This word mute can be translated dumb or lifeless or impotent. In other words, false gods. And notice he uses the word idols. There are many of them. Everybody has a God and every God has a price. And Corinthians and us at one time, we all chased after these other gods looking for life and satisfaction in them. However you were led, meaning all manners of idols that we worshipped, money, power, pleasure, you chased those gods, but they never satisfied you. 
for they made you perform with a promise that they never gave. But notice how he turns the corner in verse 3 that you were rescued from that foolish uh, path. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, how did you come to your senses? How did you see the truth that Jesus is Lord and the one true God, the only one who can bring life? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. That each one of you, Corinthians, who are Christians, each one of us received the Holy Spirit. And notice what the Holy Spirit does. Colossians 2.13 puts it this way, that you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. See, all of us were dead in sin as we chased after the idols of the world. But in Jesus Christ, those trespasses were canceled, and we who were dead were made alive. See, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of life. Jesus spoke of the Spirit in John 3, and he said, Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Without the Spirit, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But with the Spirit, we are alive. The Spirit not only brings life, but it brings new understanding. 1 Corinthians 2.12, For we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. The natural person does not accept the Spirit of God, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us that you are blind, but God opened your eyes. The proof that you know that Jesus Christ is Lord is the proof that you have the Holy Spirit. And the proof also that you refuse to say Jesus Christ is accursed is the proof that you have the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm often I'm like, gosh, man, I'm a terrible believer in Jesus Christ. But the one thing I cannot say is that Jesus Christ is not Lord and that Jesus Christ be accursed. And why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is in me. I cannot say that Jesus Christ is accursed. See, that's proof that you have the Holy Spirit. See, what Paul is saying, why he's bringing this up in verse 2 and 3 when beginning to talk about spiritual gifts, is he's saying, you think that you only have the Holy Spirit when you're speaking in tongues or doing something supernatural. But every Christian is spiritual. All who are believers in Christ have the Holy Spirit. Christ is in you, and you are redeemed. And there is no such thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. It is not what you do that makes you a Christian. It's who you are. See, they've lost the significance of that. And so can we. 
the significance of the fact that we have the Holy Spirit if you are a follower of Christ. Why is this so significant? Think about the question, what is life? The answer is the presence and working of the Holy Spirit. Think at the beginning of creation, said that God was there and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the earth. And the Hebrew there is actually of like a a mother bird over its young. The Spirit hovered over the waters and God spoke. And that word was empowered by the Spirit and brought forth life. When God creates man in Genesis 2-7, he forms him out of the dust of the ground. But then he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. The ruach is the word, which means spirit. And the man became a living creature. Jesus said it is the spirit who gives life in John 6-63. The flesh is no help at all. The Spirit not only brings life, but the Spirit brings that which is life, which is the presence of God. Think of the different times in the Old Testament when God appeared to people. Moses, when he saw the burning bush and the flame and smoke and fire is a symbol of the Spirit of God. When God went to meet with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, there was a fire that came down on top of the mountain. When he led the Israelites out, there was a pillar of cloud that led them, the presence of God. When God told the Israelites to build him a temple and gave specific instructions of how to do it, a place where he would dwell in Chronicles 7, 1 Chronicles 7, when Solomon dedicates the temple, fire came down from heaven and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. But you see, there was always a condition to come into the presence of the Spirit of God. And it was only a temporary touch for Moses to take off your sandals. To the Israelites, don't come near the mountain while God speaks to Moses or you will die. In the temple, don't come without sacrifice of blood because you are guilty in sin. You see, God is holy. And to be in the presence of God, you must be holy as well. Psalm 24, 3 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. See, if life is the presence of the Spirit, then death is the absence of the Spirit. God said to Adam and Eve, that do not eat from this tree, do not rebel against me, or you shall surely die. Well, we know what happens, right? They didn't physically die at that time, but they spiritually died. A curse was placed upon mankind, and man was cast out of the presence of the Lord. 
And as a result, unredeemed mankind is living under a curse. No, not living, but rather existing. But in the midst of that fall, God gave a promise that he would send one who would redeem humanity, who would free us from the curse, who would make us again an acceptable habitation for his life-giving Holy Spirit. And that came in the person of Jesus Christ. Titus 3, 4 puts it this way. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, Jesus Christ not only took away our guilt from what we've done, but Jesus Christ took away our shame from who we were. See, a lot of us don't understand the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is, I've done something bad. Shame is, I am something bad. Guilt is, I've made a mistake. Shame is, I am a mistake. When mankind fell in the garden, he not only did bad, he became bad. He repudiated all that he was. Isn't it interesting that before the garden, when the man and the woman were together, they were naked and they felt no shame because they were glorious. They were exactly who they were meant to be and they knew it. But what is the first thing they did when they fell? It's interesting. It's the first thing they did. They didn't try to cover up. Uh, let's get rid of the apple, right? Let's, let's get rid of the fruit. The first thing they did was they recognized that they were naked and they were ashamed. And then they hid from God because they realized not only have I done a mistake, but now I am a mistake. But Christ came not only to pay the price for our sins, to take away my guilt, but to make me a new creation. Not only that I would be blameless, but that I would be holy. That I would be an acceptable habitation that God could come in and dwell with because I'm no longer a mistake. I'm a son and daughter of God. See, why Paul is led with this before digging into spiritual gifts is he wants to communicate that you have already received the spiritual gift of all spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit himself. And through him, you are now a new creation. There is now no longer any condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Their problem, and ours all too often, is that we are forgotten, forgotten who we are. I don't know which animal you detest the most. For me, it's the cockroach. Hate the cockroach, right? You open up a drawer, 
And this little cockroach comes scuttling out. And you're like, where the heck did that come from? And he came from like underneath the lip of the sink. You know, they're, they're always dwelling in these dark, nasty places. And they come out. And they're disgusting. And you just hate them, right? Now, one of the creatures that I love the most is the butterfly. It's beautiful, isn't it, right? It doesn't dwell in the darkness. It shines in the light. It's not ugly and hideous. It's beautiful, a work and marvel of God's creation. Well, we know how the uh, butterfly starts out, right? It starts out as as a caterpillar. See, we tend to think of ourselves still as cockroaches. When the reality is, if you are a Christian, you're a caterpillar who's going to be a butterfly. See, when you look at a caterpillar, you go, I'm not seeing it. But if a biologist looks at the DNA of a caterpillar, here I'll say there is a 100% certainty that eventually this is going to be a butterfly. It is simply going through a process of transformation in which it grows into what it already is. And it happens every time. And you can't stop it. God has taken away my guilt because he's taken away my shame. Because through his Holy Spirit, he has made me a new creation. And right now, I'm a caterpillar. But I'm not a cockroach. So when you look in the mirror, what do you see? A cockroach or a caterpillar? A lot of us look in the mirror and don't like what we see. Used to be me. I'm not smart enough. Not pretty enough. I'm not holy enough. It's another day where I've got to go out and prove to God and to the world and to myself that I am somebody worthy to be loved. But for the Christian, that is a lie. Because you're not a cockroach. You're a caterpillar who is being transformed into a butterfly. And the sins and imperfections that we still struggle with right now do not prove that you are a cockroach. They simply show that the transformation from caterpillar to butterfly is not yet complete. But it is exactly on schedule. For he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So we must embrace who we are in Jesus Christ. We must rest in the freedom of his grace. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, To come home, to surrender to his love, to be transformed into a new creation. But no more survival of the fittest for the church. No more competition. It's over. We can live in celebration. And because we can live in celebration, we can become instruments of his love. It's my second point. You know, Jesus said in John 7, on the last day of this feast, 
the feasts of weeks, he got up and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And it goes on to say he was speaking of the spirit which he would send after he had ascended. But it's this word out of his heart will flow the spirit. See, the spirit not only intends to indwell us, to transform us, but to overflow us into the world, that we might be a life giver to the world, an instrument of his grace. It's no mistake that we are called Christians, which means little Christs. And now Paul is ready to talk about the spirit as an instrument of love in our hearts. Notice verse 7, he says, Now to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each one, notice that first word, to each. That no one has a monopoly on these manifestations of the Spirit. That the Spirit who dwells in each member is working differently in each member. There is no exemption. God is working through you via spirit. Now, to each one is given. Is given is in the passive present tense. Or is being given. It's something that God continues to provide. It's not something that you obtain or grasp. It's something that he gives right now. And what is this? Given it's a manifestation, the word manifestation means display or expression, not talents or potential, but rather something that is seen and benefited from. The Holy Spirit working in us in a particular way for the common good. You see that at the end? It's for the blessing and benefit of the church community. Maybe not everybody benefits from it, maybe just one person or two persons, but the building up of the body of Christ. Paul unpacks these manifestations of the Spirit in verses 4 through 7. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities or outworkings, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every word, in every, uh, excuse me, in every one. These three words, gifts and service and activities, are all in some way, shape, or form denoting the same thing. Now, notice that the word variety is used three times. There's many, many different kinds of spiritual manifestations and gifts and outworkings of God's spirit in our lives. These lists that they have that we have in the scripture are by no means exhaustive. In fact, this list is really more tailored to the issue that the Corinthians are dealing with. All sorts of different grace, gifts and activities. We see the Spirit working through people, through gifts. This word gift is the word charisma. And it actually, a better translation, a more literal translation, would be grace gifts. They're gifts of grace, given by grace, 
to give grace to others. This word service can be translated ministry. We understand what service is, right? It's serving one another, helping one another, caring for one another. This word activity or workings is the word energigmata, from where we get the word energy or power. It's God working through us as we serve and minister to one another. See, we have some misnomers about spiritual gifts that I want to clear up. We kind of see gifts like we see the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram, right? What, what's my gift? I got to figure out which my gift is. This is this particular gift, and, and that's the one I got, and it's the only one I got, and it's the one, or I've got two, or I've got three, or what? Well, it's not like that at all. Nowhere does the Bible say that you just have one gift or that you have multiple gifts. Everybody is gifted or that you have them for life. Maybe you do have specific areas in giftedness by God in particular areas of ministry and blessing, or maybe it's for a time. Maybe it's just for an hour. Empowerment to do what needs to be done. But notice that service and activity are on equal footing with the gifts. Because what is the point of a gift, right? If it's not used in service. In fact, you don't need to have a a gift to serve. Simply God working in us. And what what Paul is saying is that whenever you are ministering to God's people, God's spirit is empowering you to do so. So there's spiritual gifts in the classic sense, right? Where I have a gift and God is calling me to use it and is using that to effectively build up the church. We got to see some of this last week uh, when we went over to the roadie's house, right? Becky and Craig, Becky in particular, who has the spiritual gift of hospitality. Becky has Uh, since being a Christian, has always had that giftedness and will most likely always have that. And God is calling her to use that gift to build up and strengthen the church. Why am I here speaking to you from this pulpit today? Because God has given me speaking gifts and teaching gifts but they're absolutely useless if they're not used to serve and build up the church. There's some things that I can do. There's a lot of things I can't do. But God apportions these gifts for the benefit and blessing of the church and for what they need. So that's the classic sense, but then there's the everyday sense. That decision to stay behind after church and to help with cleanup. That's the spirit working. God empowering you to serve and do what needs to be done. Seeing that person in the congregation who is depressed and down and feeling that pull and unction to go and minister to them, to care for them with compassion, maybe giving you wisdom, something to say that needs to be said to help build them up. That's the spirit working. See, I don't have to 
have figured out all of these about my spiritual gifts in order to be used by God. What I need to have is a heart and a willingness. Because notice that the focus is on God. There are many gifts, but it's the Spirit who gives them. There's much service, but it's Jesus the Son. And this outworking is from God. It's fully Trinitarian. And all of this comes to us, verse 7, through the Holy Spirit. So I want to apply this to the list real quick. I'm not going to go exhaustively into some of these because we're going to spend time in some of these later. But look in verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. It's not talking about prophecy and tongues and that. He's simply saying that to some are given the ability to say things that provide insight into the scriptures or a person's situation. It may be something that they consistently are gifted in doing with people. It may be something literally just right then and there with somebody. It doesn't make them superman. To another, faith by the same spirit. Not faith to believe in Jesus, right? All of us have that. He's speaking more of a special confidence that God gives some of us at certain times to trust God in a, in a way that's stronger than other people. To help us remember that God is good and strong. Another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. Does God use healing in the church? Sure. And sometimes God does that through a person. He's talking here about a supernatural physically he physical healing. But should that person go then and open up a healing ministry? No. God uses that at that time for that specific purpose. And there are different times in the history and the flow of the church when God uses different manifestations of the Spirit for building up the body. You don't see a lot of healing and things like that going on in established churches. But in uh, evangelism, in unreached community groups, you see a lot more of it. The point is that God knows exactly what people need. All of these are empowered, verse 11, by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The spirit is in charge. See, the Corinthians have assumed that the spirit is a possession that they can somehow appropriate to make themselves bigger. Is it competition or is it celebration and collaboration? There was a set of train tracks uh, that I would walk past every uh, uh, day when going to school at the University of Virginia. You know, and every now and then we'd have a competition with a buddy. You get on one track, I get on another, and let's see who can go the farthest before, you know, we'd have your backpack on one, uh, you know, before you fall off. And so we'd go for a while, and then one of us invariably would, would make the other laugh, and they would fall off. You know, but if we would go ahead and reach across the track to each other, arm in arm, Really, we could go on forever, couldn't we? What would happen if we leaned on one another? This place here, 
I close, is a gymnasium of grace, full of caterpillars who are turning into butterflies. And the weight of glory sometimes is almost too heavy to bear. The transformation process is hard. I wonder when the caterpillar goes, you know, this really itches. I really wish I could be what I know I am. But the scriptures say we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. We're on the tracks together. And God empowers us with gifts and service and outworkings. The key is a willingness to use them. How is God empowering you? Am I still competing? Because competing leads to frustration and isolation. Or am I celebrating? Because celebrating will always lead in the end to joy and to service. This is who we are. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you in your son Jesus that you took away my guilt and you took away my shame. You gave me a new identity that I am a caterpillar and you are transforming me and you call me into this process of helping others in this transformation as we serve one another with gifts and service as you empower us through your Holy Spirit. God, help me to embrace who I am and to walk in this ministry that you have given me as I minister to others. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.